Let's go for it. Hello and welcome to Cities to Love. I'm Taylor Ruckel. And I'm Hayden Merrick. And for our inaugural episode, we're going to be talking about Washington, D.C., birthplace of Duke Ellington, of Marvin Gaye, of Go-Go, of East Coast hardcore punk, and of real emo. (laughs) We're starting here because these are my stomping grounds, but Hayden, tell me a little bit about your experience with this city. Well, when I graduated from university, I did the classic white privilege thing of spending three months traveling. Ah. I chose America which uh, I'd always been obsessed with and where I've always wanted to live. So I took the train the whole way across. I stopped in a bunch of cities and national parks, but uh, DC was the final stop where I flew home from. So kind of a special reflective stay there um, where I looked back on on where I'd been and wondered what the hell I was going to do when I got home. Hmm. I hung out with another guy from the UK and went to museums and bars filled with people in suits. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really think I saw like the real DC. You'll have to host me another time and give me the full tour there. The other thing I'm very aware of is, of course, the 930 Club and how important that space is for the bands that I like. It seems as though everyone who's anyone has played there. Um, I, I guess you've spent a lot of time there being a being from the area, right? It's one of my favorite local places. Yeah, it's it's definitely become more so in the last few years. Um, my first show at 930 Club was maybe not the uh, uh, most auspicious introduction. I saw Fall Out Boy there on the reunion tour, which was a great show. But I was uh, I was a senior in high school at the time, and I'd grown up about an hour or so out of town. And uh, I didn't have much direct connection to the DC music scene until I actually graduated from college. It ramped up a lot when I moved home uh, to you know stay with my parents and um, even more so when I moved to Arlington in 2020. So nowadays I get to go to a lot of shows at 930 Club and uh, other great local venues like Black Cat and Comet Ping Pong. And uh, I'm about a mile away where I live from the old Discord Records house. So of course I've I've made my pilgrimage there. Yeah, forget the American football house, am I right? Exactly, exactly. It's all about the Discord house here. Why don't you tell us about something classic from dc to start us off i would love to i'm so excited to do that to follow along with our focus tracks check out the cities to love playlist on spotify and youtube you can find links in the episode description my classic pick is black dots by bad brains this is an album that was not released until 1996 but it's from a recording session Bad Brains did in 1979 with Don Zentera at Inner Ear Studios, aka Don Zentera's basement in Arlington, Virginia, uh, another place that is right down the road from me. Yeah. This is a really great record for a lot of reasons. One of the things that I love is the way that it captures this sort of nascent form of hardcore punk as it was being born. And at the time, you know, you're talking about this home recording setup where there's no isolation booth. The singer from Bad Brains HR recorded his vocals in Don Zentera's backyard. And so at points on this record, you get some Buddy Holly and the Crickets effect. And um, in spite of all that, I think it sounds very clean and very sharp. And um, it really gives you a great sense of, of what this band sounded like at this time when they were with a bunch of other you know bands uh, in the area and on the West Coast, sort of codifying what hardcore punk was going to sound like for the next ever until today even yeah hugely influential right um there's a a good quote from chris richards at the washington post shout out to chris um but it's not about this album but i thought it might be relevant to mention here um he said he writes listen for the 501st time and you'll hear new sparks shooting off it For instance, ever notice that the most torrential moments of Dr. No's guitar solos tend to move up the fretboard like a rainstorm in reverse, or how at the end of an especially locomotive burst of words, HR likes to curl his last syllable into a vertical shriek. I just love that line, or that whole passage. It's so true, and I love that um, what 
Chris Richards is referring to, of course, is the kind of more official Bad Brains debut record, The Yellow Tape, which has the iconic artwork of lightning striking the the roof of mm-hmm. the U.S. Capitol. And that, that record was released after they had already moved away from D.C. to New York City, where they were also super influential on the kind of um, budding hardcore scene in that city. This record is full of references to local landmarks and, and things. There's a, a reference in the track list to the Atlantis, which was actually the original incarnation of the 930 Club before it was established you know, as we know it today. There's references to being banned in D.C., which they they were because of their uh, the intensity of their live shows and and the kind of lack of support for, you know, what was yeah. becoming hard, hardcore punk. So there were there were blacklisted from from certain venues then. That's the story. It's it's tough to kind of um, verify that mm-hmm. historically, of course. But, you know, at the time, it was a very different situation. Clubs and restaurants they were playing were not necessarily equipped to handle hardcore shows. And to say nothing of the fact that there's a racial element involved here when you have a band of black men playing hardcore punk. And um, that, that of course, is also yeah. folded in here. You can get a real sense of what those early shows must have been like on this record, just in how spare it is. And there's also hints of their background as highly technical musicians because they used to be jazz fusion musicians before they they got into the Ramones and they renamed themselves after a Ramones song and started making this much more heavy and, and intense kind of yeah, music. That's that's so cool. I did, so that's not the typical trajectory, is it? You know, in high school you're listening to punk and then you you like quote outgrow it and go on to more complex um genres, but you can totally tell they know exactly what they're doing and they could play circles around, you know, their peers, right? Absolutely. There's a quote from Don Fleming where he says something like, uh, Don Fleming, who was in, um, you know, a, a, another punk band at the time, that most of the kids were figuring out which end of the guitar to hold. And uh, here here you have the bad brains. <laughs> and uh, and you can see that later on in their career too, as they would go on to, to shift into this more kind of reggae crossover sound and incorporate lots of heavy metal and and all kinds of super interesting crossovers. They make this record and uh, it it ends up getting not officially released, but circulated as a tape among people like Ian MacKay and Henry Rollins. It becomes this kind of underground classic, even though it doesn't see wide release until so much later. Right. So it's like we've been retrospectively let in on something we weren't really meant to hear, like a, you know, we're the in crowd now. That's right. We are all part of that that nascent hardcore scene, hearing it emerge from the primordial soup. Yeah. So is there a, a standout track on this then that's good for um, a good entry point? I really love the song Don't Bother Me, and that is the one that I'd like to highlight. And now that you have heard Chris Richards' excellent description of what it how it feels to listen to Bad Brains, I want to tell you about my one short experience with their music in a live setting, which is very, very different. And that is that one of my personal formative local music memories is shortly after high school, I think, or sometime on the border between high school and college, I was at this local coffee shop called Deja Brew in Haymarket, Virginia, um, which is this very kind of bougie suburb. The name checks out. (laughs) It does have that sound to it. It's where I would... um, you know, uh, I, I haunted that place with my many, many questionable Decemberists covers, I will say, <laughs> at uh, open mic nights. And I'm in there one day and uh, these two guys in beanies get up with their acoustic guitars and they start playing Don't Bother Me by Bad Brains. And it's just such an I- ironic scene um, to have witnessed. But it speaks to kind of the impact for me that this band made. And I will say for me personally, they ended up being this gateway to a much broader social consciousness. Did the two, the two uh, hipsters with their acoustic guitars, <laughs> did they live up to the original? Oh, absolutely not. Of course not. Never. <laughs> but it was, you couldn't. Um, nobody could. But um, it was very funny. And I remember as soon as I kind of realized what was going on, you have that moment like, are they playing Don't Bother Me by Bad Brains? I think they are playing Don't Bother Me by Bad Brains. And I remember leaning over to to my then partner now wife and saying I recognize this song and she 
leans back over to me and whispers in my ear, honey, you are hipster trash. <laughs> and that was, and she was right about that. That's when you knew she was the one and bad, bad brains was also the one. That's when I knew. So that's why this song has such a special place in my memory, but also you really can't go wrong with it as a way to get into them. It's so indicative of their early sound. It's uh, it's a great interest point if you want to know kind of why this band was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Gateway into the rest of the sprawling catalog by the sounds of it. Right, because of course they go on. They make their second record with Rick Ocasek from The Cars. They move on to Reggae Fusion. They do so many things that are worth spending time on. But this is kind of ground zero for their impact. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track one, Don't Bother Me by Bad Brains. So in my growing up in this area, the the history that I kind of gravitated to was the DC punk scene and and wanting to know as much as I could about that. And all the while, I have missed quite a lot of other very exciting DC indie rock. Hayden, why don't you tell me about your classic pick? I'd love to. My classic pick is Black Tambourine's self-titled compilation, Black Tambourine. Now, Black Tambourine were kind of the impetus for this DC-based record label called Slumberland Records. And you may be thinking, or some listeners may be thinking, Slumberland is a Bay Area jangle pop label. But funnily enough, they for the first few years of their life, Slumberland was in DC. So this guy, Michael Shulman, started the label in 1989 with a bunch of friends from the University of Maryland's campus radio station. Uh, they came together and bonded over their love of like the Flying Nun roster and the Creation Records roster, plus the noisy US-based bands like Dinosaur Jr. and Sonic Youth. And also all like the shoegaze stuff that was happening across the pond. Um, lots of them worked in record stores and they congregated at two big student houses by the uni where some of them lived. And I actually was luckily, uh, lucky enough to speak to Mike for an article. And he said, it was rather an exciting time. Someone was always coming home with some awesome new record that we could all get into. There always seemed to be just enough pizza or beer to get by and always cool shows to go to or play. I mean, that's the dream, right? Absolutely. That is what you that is the ideal college situation. Uh, We do have to stop and just shout out that we are in the presence of an expert here. Readers of Bandcamp Daily may know that Hayden Merrick published a label profile there for Slumberland Records in 12 albums. So if this is something that sounds interesting to you. Uh, highly recommend go check out that amazing piece oh thank you very kind i did not ask i didn't ask for the shout out just for the record (laughs) i want to say also that uh, i'm very impressed that you managed to find maybe the most british sounding dc bands possible (laughs) and actually i was very interested to find that there is a uh some interesting crossover in the uh, early roster of slumberland records because you've mentioned that uh, one of their early signees was Jane Powell from Brighton, where you were based. Exactly. Yeah. I was so surprised to find that. And it kind of cements the fact that DC and Brighton are sister cities, right? And we were meant to do this podcast. It's, Many people uh, are saying this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this label, Slumberland, they moved to the Bay Area about uh, two years after uh, they started. But in those early early years they put out a bunch of seven inches and eps before the first full length that they put out by a band called lilies who we'll actually speak about later so this self-titled black tambourine package came out in 2010 i'm curious what's the breakdown where did these songs originate right yeah so it's not exactly a a full-length album as such the band didn't actually put out a full-length lp but this reissue compiles all of their seven inches that they released between 1989 and 1991. So they were a band for barely two years. But in addition to something like 18 tracks, there's also two newly recorded tracks that they did in 2010 to uh, to add on to the end of the album. And I didn't know this 
during my first few listens because it's actually really hard to spot which ones are the new ones, which I guess is a testament to how hmm. um, those lo-fi recording, those lo-fi sonics never really go, do they? They're just Never, never timeless. goes out of style. Never goes out of style, exactly. But yeah, I think that the song I'd point to off this record, uh, and there's not like one song kind of in the way that with the Slumberland roster, there's not one band like um, there that bands like the Reds, Pinks and Purples and Chime School and the Umbrellas are are well known for their kind of Bay Area jangle pop connotations. But um, there's not like one band on this label that carries the rest. Right, right. It's not like an Elephant Six situation where there's Neutral Milk Hotel and then everybody else. Yeah, exactly. Um, which I kind of like. So it's very equitable. And I think with the album, it's the same. There's not like a, a one song that sticks out. Um, and so I would, I'd probably point to Black Heart if I had to choose. So this song is kind of built around this very beguiling guitar chord progression hmm. that uses like some non-diatonic chords. So there's, it's kind of unsettling and there's some tension there, sort of woozy sound. Um, and then the thing that, as as we were joking about earlier, there's the rhythm to this piece is very hard to pin down. I initially wondered if it was a waltz, but it's it's huh. not. It's kind of a a swing feel. It's like one two three, one two three, one two one two three. But um, yeah, so it's got it's kind of unsettled and slightly jolty, but also really beautiful. Um, totally. Yeah, they've they really master the kind of mixture of noise and prettiness. I think that you'll see in you know in Loveless and albums like that that they were totally drawing from around similar time. Yes, I think for me, what I love about this record especially is Pam Berry's vocal harmonies, which are just gorgeous, and then juxtaposed with this screeching, grinding guitar tone, it's it's really incredible. Yeah, that's hit the nail on the head that's totally that's totally the usp those following along in the cities to love playlist we now invite you to play track two black car by black tambourine so you have kind of alluded to the broader scene around slumberland which is something i'm still very interested to explore a little bit further so with that why don't you tell me about something cool yeah, for sure. So my cool pick is Lilies, and the record is called A Brief History of Amazing Letdowns. Terrific album title. Yeah, it is a great album title. So it feels a little bit cheeky because Lilies were at one point signed to Slumberland um, for their debut album, but that's not the one I'm going to be covering here. This is the mini LP slash EP, whatever you want to call it, that they followed up their debut with in um in 1993 so lily's the this kind of enigmatic chameleonic band that covered a bunch of different styles in their run and they went through over 70 members which the only comparison i can think <laughs> of is so <laughs> the fall i know yeah. it's wild um so the one constant member was uh, a Philly native, a uh, native of Philadelphia called Kurt Heasley. Um, even though he's from Philly, he formed the band in DC and uh, they stayed there for several years before he went on and moved around and recruited more members and then presumably fired them or they <laughs> or they couldn't continue to work with him or, or whatever. We won't, we won't speculate. Plus, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this is kind of a transitional record for them. Their debut was this gloomy shoegaze thing. Um, and then after this record, they went on to do more like pop rock stuff in the style of the Small Faces and bands like the Kinks, uh, Mod Pop, mm. I believe is the mm. other term for it. For me, this is the sweet spot. I feel like it lives in the kind of mid-90s, pavement adjacent world of almost pop punk songs with fuzzy guitars three chords great solos um with so catchy so catchy there's one exception which is the song g cobalt franklin 
um, which I believe was added for the reissue, but uh, Kurt referred to this as Dad Gad Post Rock Sludge, which I just He has a way with words, doesn't he? He does have a way with words indeed. <laughs> this EP was made as a three-piece with uh, Harold Evans and Paul Naomi. And at the time, Kurt worked as a buyer for Tower Records in DC near George Washington University, which is mm. where he met Mike, the founder of Slumberland. Um, so he's a, he's a well-connected guy, and, and hence two songs from this fuzz pop EP ended up on the very mainstream commercials which is so surprising to me so yeah this is a wild story yeah so it's actually the same song was in two commercials the song ginger which opens the record um was in a calvin klein ad and a cadillac ad as well (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't exactly scream cadillac this record does it no it doesn't and stuff like this doesn't happen anymore right like i I i've heard like sonic youth on Calvin Klein ads or whatever, but they that feels in a different level of fame or whatever. Right, but, right, right. But I think, um, well, I'll let I'll let Heasley explain. He says um, Tim Barnes, who played drums in Ditch Croker and is an incredible productive percussionist, was an associate editor at this video post facility, Lost Planet in NYC. The producer who was shooting the CK One campaign said. Oh my God, I need something. If you have any ideas musically, just give me what you got. And Tim, who'd been letting me sleep on his couch, he's like, oh, you know, I just got this CDR, whatever, of Kurt's demos. They're not even out yet, I don't think. And so basically, the guy whose couch Kurt was sleeping on handed his CDR of this song, Ginger, to this guy. And then, lo and behold, that sets them up with some... Nice royalties, I think, for, for for time coming. Good for them. Yeah, I will say. But there was there was a really interesting quote here. Also, I love that interview. By the way, I went and read through it, and um, yeah, what an amazing interviewee. But uh, there's a great quote here about why he thinks that worked for the the spot, um, where he says, "If you don't mind me reading this, please do." I think there is that rub of recognizability, that rub of reality that maybe some music supervisors love. It's in the realm of right, but there's something about it like, yeah, it sticks out a bit. That could be good. That could work in our favor. Yeah, the realm of right is like someone needs to name a a song now or something. I really like that. Such a strange sequence of words. It's like the title of um, a book about Slumberland Records or something, right? Yes. That would be like the title. It would be like the realm of right, Slumberland Records and comma, etc. You know? Yeah, we'll get a proposal going on that but uh there's a real handmade quality to this ep that i love it's so it it is well recorded and well mixed um but there's a real physicality and roughness to the way everything sounds i think especially in the sound of the percussion the sound of the vocals and for me i think that really gives it that rub of reality at least in a production sense yeah great point i think it's it's very warm and it's very punchy and the levels a great i think the bass pokes through a lot as well which you don't always tend to hear in this kind of um genre um this the song i'd point to from this mini album is called jenny andrew and me uh, again you kind of could have picked any and ginger's a, a really great track but considering we've all heard it in the calvin klein ad um, <laughs> we should also listen to jenny andrew and me uh this song just makes me smile when it comes on it's it's got a really really cool guitar solo that makes you scrunch up your nose i think it's the chord sequence and the guitar solo together which is obviously just i'm just listing components of the song now but um (laughs) it's it's really great and really catchy and just that right level of kind of a slight undertone of melancholy but it's also very happy in the in the way that i think um like crooked rain by pavement is and those kind of albums um it it does it for me it scratches my itch so it's also my second dc song about a car uh after black car because the lyrics here are some kind of love triangle that's taking place partially in a car it's it's kind of unclear but 
Uh, yes, that's my pick for the, the track to highlight. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track three, Jenny, Andrew, and Me by Lilies. So, Taylor, we're also picking something current, and I wondered what your pick was for a DC band that is current. Yes, my current pick is Live Forever by Barty Strange, who is an artist I love and an artist who's had a very unusual path to being the kind of genre-bending indie darling that he's become in the past three or four years. His uh, father was a military engineer, so he traveled around a lot in his early childhood. I believe he did a lot of growing up in Oklahoma before he was based in D.C. Right, yeah, I read that he has spent some time in Greenland and Germany and was also born in um, the most boring part of England, Ipswich, of all places. I'm allowed to say that because I'm from England, even though I've never been to Ipswich. <laughs> but um, No comment over Ed here. Ed Sheeran is also from around there, so go figure. And I, I have nothing to say about that either. But Bartia Strange's mother is an opera singer, so he ends up going to opera camp as a kid. He uh, traveled around the state with his mother and his siblings performing in operas and singing in churches. Yeah, you can tell he's had that training, the, the power in his voice and his control over it. It's just one kind of piece of the puzzle in his musical background, because before he launched his solo project, he was part of a New York City post-hardcore band called Stay Inside. Um, he's, he's had this very rich life experience. He played college football. He worked in PR. He was the deputy press secretary for the FCC. Um, For a time, he didn't release his debut solo record until he was 31. And I just need to take a moment to appreciate, you know, all of these kinds of data points. I love stories like his for totally not personal reasons, just because, (laughs) you know, just because. It's never too late, right? Let's compare ourselves to Barty's rather than like Lou Reed, who had already recorded the most influential alternative album of all time by the time he was our age, right? (laughs) I like that. I like that. Let's not compare ourselves Lou, to Lou Reed Lou for so who? many reasons. Yeah, Lou, Lou, everybody's saying it. Lou, Lou who? Team parties. Yes. This album, Live Forever, his debut solo record, is super versatile. It starts on this very dreamy kind of ambient pop song. It immediately gets louder. It rocks. It rocks hard. It incorporates elements of hip hop. There are some real left field beat driven tracks like Moss Blurred. There's acoustic ballads like Fallen For You. It's it's so wide ranging and uh, he's very good at all of these different things. Yeah, I, I feel like they're, in fact, the opening line of Moss Blurds is genres keep us in our boxes. So he's almost explicitly referencing the fact that he's incorporating a whole lot of um, reference points. Yes, it's very conscious on his part. There's a great interview with him on the uh, Recording Academy website, Grammy.com, where he says, I feel like I naturally am writing a lot of different things all the time. Like, it's always been hard for me to just write hardcore songs or just punk songs or whatever. I felt like with songs like Kelly Rowland and Moss Blurred and some of the more beat-driven ones, it's hard for me to say there's a through line between those and the rock songs. But I remember looking back at the projects and saying, I don't have to be afraid that all these songs sound different because the through line, I think, is just me, just that I made them and that it's my story and my voice and my experiences. I got goosebumps yeah, reading I that. that. I just love his I love his approach to art and the idea that it's all connected because it's all him. Yeah, it's very real. And that's also a very humble way of of putting it from him. On the whole, I feel like it reflects a much more kind of genre agnostic state of music we have in the 2020s as compared to, you know, let's say DC in the early 80s, where there's very codified sort of pockets of of different styles that are happening. Mm -hmm. And um, I also really like that about this record because it it reminds me of the way that DC kind of feels as a city. It's a place that a lot of people move to for work and move away from. A common theme of this this uh, episode, rather, is bands and labels that start here and don't stay here. There are a lot yeah. of these deep-rooted local phenomena, but there's also a lot of turnover. And I think that this very eclectic style and this very, you know, wide-ranging background of his speaks a lot to the locality. That's a really great point. I hadn't exactly picked up on that, but 
yeah, all of our picks so far, they've gone on and done different things. They've moved and yeah, that naturally that's going to uh, trickle down. Also, what I love about Barty Strange is that in addition to his own music, he's produced a lot of other great up and coming indie acts. One of my favorite bands of the last few years is Oceanator, uh, who's an indie rock artist from New York City. Sorry, who's based in New York City, but is from the D.C. area originally. There we go again. He's uh, produced a record for Cinema Hearts, which is a excellent D.C.-based 50s pop slash rock slash surf kind of pastiche act. And uh, for Harmony Woods, an indie rock band from Philly. And um, so he's he's got a lot of irons in the fire. He's doing a lot of different things, working with a lot of people on this record. It's been re-released with an updated version of the song Kelly Rowland, which is now called Free Kelly Rowland, yeah. <laughs> featuring the, the hip-hop duo Arm & Hammer. Uh, and fun fact, Billy Woods from Arm & Hammer is also from D.C. originally. Wow. The links just keep coming. It's just layers upon layers. We just can't get to the middle of the D.C. onion. Yeah. <laughs> so is there a, a track from this album that is your favorite or a good one that's emblematic of the whole thing? I love the song Mustang. If I had to pick one right now, it would probably be Mustang, which ironically is about his hometown of Mustang, Oklahoma. <laughs> right. And uh, it's not the most fun song on the record, uh, which is probably the one after it, Boomer. Right. Um, but I love the way on this track, you can really hear where he's coming from in terms of the post-hardcore roots. He he gets really rough with the vocals, which is so fun to hear him do because he, as we've talked about, has this deep, rich, well-trained voice. And when he puts that grit into it, it is so powerful. Yeah. Um, I also relate very heavily to the lyrics of this song. The, the, way, the way he belts, is anybody really up for this one if I don't hold nothing back? And uh, it's, it's a really powerful sentiment that speaks to his own lived experience um, and the long winding road to get where he is um, and to be making the kind of music he wants to make for an audience that is paying attention. Um, and it's also so universal, this idea of not being seen or recognized. Yeah, there's, um, I don't have much to add. I think you've absolutely nailed it. But I, one thing I'd point out is that the album is called Live Forever, which is kind of intriguing, especially considering a, a band who shall not be named have also got a record <laughs> called Live Forever, but um, I'm sure there's no link there. No, no. In, instead, um, uh, there's a quote here from, a profile that Stereogum did on him where he said, it took me a long time to realize that I could build whatever world I wanted. I didn't have to wait for someone to pick me. That was something that I never believed about myself until I made this record. So I feel like that links in with the title there and it's kind of the perfect name for this collection of songs. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track four. Mustang by Barty's Strange. There's a lot of other really cool music happening right now in DC. And uh, Hayden, I would love it if you would tell me about something else current. Yeah, of course. So my current pick is a band called Origami Angel and their second full length album, Gami Gang. If you're not familiar with Origami Angel, they're a two piece band uh, consisting of guitarist and vocalist Ryland Heegy and drummer Pat Doherty, which is a kind of unusual setup that you tend to see in the more White Stripes-esque bands, you know, who just do the single string riffs or whatever. But but these these two guys really pull off being a two-piece. Um, they've said several times that the reason they're a two-piece is because of another DC band who they saw live, um, The Obsessives, and they've said there would be no Origami Angel without the Obsessives. So thank you to the Obsessives for being a two-piece. Further homework for me. I uh, I got to get into the Obsessives. Yeah. So Origami Angel were formed in 2017. And they're kind of grouped in with this fifth wave of emo. So it's, so it's called, like I say, like that, that as though it's a thing, um, I guess it is, but, uh, <laughs> it is, it's totally a thing. It's totally a thing. So fifth wave emo, I think we're talking about bands such as dog leg, pool kids, home is where proper. And also harmony woods, who you mentioned earlier, I believe is sometimes call back the more like emo folk, uh, side of things. Uh, if we can call it that, 
Yeah. I, I believe you also you did some <laughs> re- okay. you did some research right into whether they actually officially are emo. Uh, well, I went to the most authoritative source on this I could find, which of course would be isthisbandemo.com. <laughs> And I'm proud to report that isthisbandemo.com says they are emo. So checkmate naysayers. There we go. They are emo. I have to say this band reminds me of um, a lot of stuff that I grew up listening to and loving. A lot of this very super catchy pop punk that was um, happening in the aughts with uh, lots of rich harmonies and a, a good sense of humor. I think of Reliant K when I hear this band, if I'm being honest. Yeah, for sure. I, I can see that. I'm not too familiar with them, but um, I think we're on the same lines here. For me, it's it's grounded in, yeah, that kind of heavier end of the pop punk spectrum. Uh, it really reminds me of the band Four Years Strong, who I was really, really into in high school, college, and bands like Set Your Goals around that time. There was definitely a, a mid to late 2000s thing of bands doing the newfound glory choruses but also the breakdowns the beatdowns the the chugging guitars and the fast runs and yes that's i had to yeah i had to look into four years strong i had never gotten on that on that band um and i'm i agree with you 100 percent. that is absolutely a through line happening here yeah it's definitely in there i think there's lots of other stuff going on as well and hence emo is sort of an apt denomination in a way because it's so broad and you've got of course the dc history of emo bands like rights of spring whose influence in origami angel is like a very light kind of sprinkle uh but then also you know midwest emo i don't think anyone really knows what that is anymore right so um, right 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 if uh sunny day real estate is basically midwest emo then what where are we at (laughs) right yeah but um going further than that the band incorporates other influences uh for example ryland heji the guitarist studied jazz composition at school and he thought he was going to be like in jazz bands and uh they have a few songs that reference this so there's bossa nova core which uh kind of basically is a bossa nova riff on some super distorted uh chunky guitar and uh, there's some surf music in their recent single, Thank You, New Jersey. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on in here. And it's it makes for a really fun, interesting, topsy-turvy listen. Funnily enough, the thing that kind of sort of is the through line of this album are the samples in between the songs from Malcolm in the Middle and Jimmy Neutron. <laughs> um, which... Uh, Classic, classic pop culture uh, touchstones, of course. Yeah, exactly. And of course, the bad puns in the track titles. Um, The song I wanted to feature is called No Offense, as in someone's name, Noah, and their surname being Fence. And uh, I was reading a profile on Origami Angel uh, by the one and only Ian Cohen. Shout out to Ian Cohen, (laughs) um, who said literally in the interview I, I just got that joke right now as i've said this out loud no offense <laughs> so i you know i pride myself on that's the one time i'm gonna get one up on ian cohen because I, I got yeah. it before him you know got him good suck it ian <laughs> um thank you for all you do ian yeah you <laughs> can't t- even yeah i can't even joke about it because ian cohen is is one of the um more influential writers on my own life as a music journalist so genuinely genuinely thanks for the interview ian yeah, but sorry, your sense of humor sucks. Yeah, well. <laughs> but there's this, you picked out a song called Trust, uh, right? For for one of the lines in there that... Yeah, I had to shout out this song just because it starts with the line, every time I'm on 495 stuck in traffic, I remember I'd do anything to be with you. And that is just one of the most DC uh, lyrics imaginable because every time I'm stuck in traffic on 495, I need... I like. I'm in I'm in the worst place in my whole life. Like I'm I'm about to do something drastic. I'm that's that's the 495 experience. They've really captured something local there. Yeah, and of course the the you that you want to be with is is the cats, right? Of course. Um, this uh this second full length Garmy Gang, as I've said, is kind of a 
this uh, amalgam of all these different influences. Um, the record before this, Somewhere City, their debut is more typically emo. Um, it's still got its breakdowns and whatnot. But then last year, so this band is very prolific uh, in case you're not uh, already realizing that because they've had two full lengths with a mixtape released just this week in fact the week that we're recording this and last year they put out two eps as well in very close succession these eps are really interesting because instead of like merging their influences they decided to isolate them and kind of experiment with the two ends of the spectrum so uh depart which is stylized in uppercase is like through and through dc hardcore inspired it goes hard like it's definitely the heaviest thing they've done yeah um he's 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 shouting there's no choruses um you know and then on the other side of the page is return which is in stylized in lowercase and i've just felt my voice sort of sink down a little bit as i as i <laughs> as i thought Ooh. of it because return lowercase makes us feel good doesn't it but it does. um it's oh, my heart of... rate my heart rate is dropping <laughs> that's uh like a kind of acoustic singer songwriter indie pop inspired ep and uh pitchfork compared it to alex g or they they actually said it's somewhere between alex g and say anything which i think mm. is pretty spot on but also ironically the new mixtape that they just put out this week is actually inspired by new jersey summers so oh, is it is it really we shouldn't talk about that one too much we should not no we'll save that for, can't believe it for the new jersey episode can't believe they would betray us that way yeah they would betray me specifically that way <laughs> just you they've got it in for you but <laughs> no offense is the the song to go to for me on this one um it's teed up by quite an obscure sample that comes from an old Reebok commercial that aired during like the Super Bowl in 2003 or something and uh I don't know if I don't know how sort of ubiquitous this is in the US but I certainly wasn't familiar with it it's Terry Tay office linebacker um if that rings a bell and he's kind of talking heads like the office style and he's saying um you know do I enjoy what I do hell yeah and then it kicks into <laughs> this fast punky riff um it's super upbeat it's super melodic you know everything is at a 10 like, i don't know how he does it live because he's singing he's shredding um yeah it it must be exhausting to be in this band but it's a great song those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track five, Noah Fence by Origami Angel. So Taylor, I told you about something cool with uh, Lilies. How about you tell me about something cool now? I would be delighted. Sorry, it sounded a bit uh, <laughs> sort of antagonistic there, but I am excited <laughs> to hear. Why don't you tell me something cool, idiot? What do you have? <laughs> yeah, show me what you got. My cool pick is a record called Reflection by a band called Chalk Circle. And this is our, I believe, our third, at least, archival release of this episode. Yeah. And this is a this is a compilation of tracks that were recorded from 1981 to 1983 and not released until 2011. This is a band that came up in the punk scene of the late 70s and early 80s. They were listening to underground music on Georgetown University radio. They were going to early Bad Brain shows. They were running in the same circles as bands like the Teen Idols, which was the precursor to Minor Threat. Right. And they're heavily influenced by these punk bands around them. Um, but at this during this window in DC, there's still a real openness to what punk can be stylistically. And you really hear that in this record, which adopts a lot more from, from post-punk and, and sort of, um, has this real sense that there's no rules. It's the, such an inventive record. And it so perfectly captures this feeling for me of discovery when you're young and you're involved in a music scene and, and you're sort of pushing to see what you can accomplish. Yeah. That, it sounds like they're feeling their way through it, right? And testing the waters. What 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 sound can we make? 
Um, yes. There's so much going on around this time in DC. Honestly, it's it's kind of overwhelming in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. And Hayden, when we, you know, did our kind of preparation for this episode and uh, I sent you this record, you mentioned that this is one that you particularly enjoy listening to. And so I'm curious, you know, before we talk a little bit more about the biographical stuff, what was it that spoke to you about this record? Yeah, I guess a couple different things. Um, for one, Sharon Cheslow's vocal delivery. Um, I really like how her melody lines trace the guitar patterns. Mm. Or actually, it should be the other way around there because, mm. you know, she's the one in control and the, the guitars are following her. So, um, yeah. I, th I think the track Scrambled is a good example of this. Um, also, the way she's not really singing, she kind of does occasionally, but she's more vacillating between kind of shouting and speak singing. Um, and then behind her, you've got the primitive drumming from Anne Bonafi, um, Yes. which just sounds like she's playing on garbage can lids and pots and pans with wooden spoons, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. And it's kind of a trite analogy, but you can just imagine them being in the garage and someone's dad is upstairs, like screaming to keep the noise down. Shout out to dads. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. But also, I, sorry, go ahead. As we were doing the preparation for this episode and nailing down the records we wanted to talk about, we actually got in touch with Sharon Cheslow, who was kind enough to send us a copy of the uh, booklet that came in the LP release of this record in 2011. Um, which was compiled from old pictures and uh, and uh, all kinds of materials from when they were together, diary entries and things, and, so cool. and liner notes by Don Fleming. And one of the really interesting things from the LP booklet is that uh, Anne Bonifee says she was not a drummer before Chalk Circle, and then in the few years they're together, she develops this really distinctive and cool style. I love the way the snare rolls sound on this record. Yeah. The, the production as well, overall, just to um, sort of touch on that, because yes. this is a compilation, it kind of goes all over the place, right? In a nice yes. way, like there's some live recordings, I believe, and and some of those are really kind of muddy and lo-fi and in that really nice way. But uh, yeah, it's so raw and just cool and intimate and yeah. I really like this record. So this band only ended up playing four live shows. The album collects recordings that they made with Don Zentera in 1982 at uh, Inner Ear. Uh, shout out to episode MVP, Don Zentera. And then also there are some live cuts. And so like you say, it's it's um, there's some real variation in the way things sound. Um, and it's such a cool kind of historical document for that reason and the way that it, it draws together these different elements of what was going on around here at that time. Yeah. They... Um, at the same time, though, it captures the way that um, hardcore punk at the time was becoming this more codified style, sort of centered on on bands like Minor Threat and Black Flag. And so bands like Chalk Circle kind of get pushed to the margins, um, which is to say bands with more adventurous musicality like Chalk Circle, but also bands of women. And after they have this first session with Don Zentera, uh, Discord Records actually turns them down to release it. They end up putting out a couple songs on an Outside Records compilation later, um, but they don't end up releasing most of this material until 2011. Um, and so again, I want to give a huge shout out to Sharon who we, you know, corresponded with and who, who supplied us with some of this historical information. It's great that this record was finally released, um, but it still feels so under-recognized. You know, I also have to give a shout out to the music writer, Jessica Hopper, whose book is the reason that I even knew this band existed at all. She wrote about this album for Chicago Reader in 2011. And she comments in that piece on the way that there is seemingly just this one narrative of the birth of punk that gets regurgitated over and over in all the books and documentaries that get made and then interview the same few guys. And she highlights the fact that it's a totally incomplete narrative. And I just want to, you know, close this segment by quoting from her piece. She says, Every one of those accounts is missing its women. Just outside these heroes' tales hover the ghosts of bands and folks who existed on punk's margins of feminist, arty, goth-punk trios and queer work that went undocumented. And still not one of those boring documentaries tells the story of how Cheslow, after the demise of Chalk Circle, talked long and seriously with her good friend Ian Mackay about the way hardcore had become so macho and exclusive that there was no safe place for women within it. 
This burst Mackay's bubble, fueling DC Punk's major transformation of the 1980s, the Revolution Summer of 1985, which in turn gave us Fugazi and Emo in its visceral pre-commercial form. Reflection is a small but mighty blow to the version of punk history written by the winners. May there be many more. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track six, Reflection by Chalk Circle. If I have learned anything from the process of making this episode, it's that there's just way too much cool stuff from DC to talk about. We didn't even talk about Fugazi. We didn't talk about Dismemberment Plan. We didn't talk about the uh, alternative bluegrass scene around here and uh, bands like the Seldom scene that my dad uh, is very into. There's a punk band I know who used to be based here who recorded a live album in a lecture hall at Georgetown University. It's one of my favorite local stories I've come across as I've been around here, you know. That's so cool. They are called Taciturn, and uh, everybody listening should go look them up too on top of everything else we've talked about. Mm -hmm. We can add those to the playlist bonus bonus we should have a bonus playlist we'll talk off mic (laughs) (laughs) i love living here because dc just feels like the perfect size city for me personally it's just big enough to have all of this amazing culture going on and it's for me not so big as to be overwhelming i i feel like i have great conversations with people on the metro coming back from shows at 9 30 club and black cat and wherever i feel like i'm not a super sentimental person when it comes to places that i've lived But I had this moment last summer where I was at a Cinema Hearts show on the rooftop terrace at the MLK Public Library downtown. And I look over and I see this clearly a dad in a drive like Jehu t-shirt chaperoning a bunch of middle school age girls at this punk show. And I just thought, you know, this is uh, it's a pretty cool town, I have to say. It's going to be you one day. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much to everybody for listening. And uh, to close us out, Hayden, where are we going for our next episode? So next time we're coming to the city of Brighton, England, uh, which is where I live. It's about 50 miles south of London on the coast. It's known for its pier, for its hundreds of independent stores, and as the gay capital of the UK. Shout out. Brighton uh, also used to be home to Nick Cave. I believe he's since moved uh, over to your side of the pond, Taylor, because all the sounds all the, about right. All the good ones leave, but um, everyone knows Royal Blood and the Kooks. At least they do over here. But um, <laughs> I have a feeling we'll be talking about some other bands, though. I, so I get the feeling you might be right. <laughs> For more from the hosts of Cities to Love, check out the episode description, where you can find links to the Cities to Love playlist as well as some of our other music writing work. Thanks to Ultimate Overshare for the use of Gotta Juice, which is our intro and outro music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. This has been Cities to Love. <laughs>